I'm going to preach to you this morning about the just gospel. The just gospel. Let me uh, pray just for a moment. It will be in Romans 3.25 again. Mighty God, we're grateful. We are grateful for these words we've, we've sung about your goodness and kindness, the magnificence of the triune God who has exercised grace and justice to secure to secure us from from wrath and to purchase sonship. Oh God, we love you and we praise you. Help us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 3, 25. I really do think that this is probably the the centerpiece of the of the gospel. This is how we understand that it works, why it works, how it works, what it has worked. Paul begins in uh, verse 21. I'm going to back all the way up to there because this is where he finally begins to give us some solution to the opening lines in the book. And he says, Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. And may God himself help you and I as we ponder the depth of these words here. God's gospel is good news. Remember, that's probably the Maybe the simplest way to say in Greek what the word gospel means, good news. God's good news, this gospel, it's really only good news to men who are facing the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a very important aspect of the gospel, isn't it? Understanding the wrath of God and what it would really mean to face it or even to have to endure it. God's gospel involves these words, the word justification, word redemption, word propitiation. We've touched on the meaning of of each of these words. We're going to come back to the word justification probably next week, maybe the week following. But these, these three things, justification and redemption and propitiation, are the greatest works of God 
for the rescue of sinners from God's wrath. These are the most astonishing works of God. And if you've never realized or understood that Christ at the cross, Christ on the cross, is the one suffering a sinner's death, if you've never realized that the suffering of Christ is the death that that sinners deserve, if you've never known or seen that he is the one suffering the death that you deserve, if, if this has never really made it to your heart, then these words of justification and redemption and propitiation are just big words in your vocabulary. They're just theological words. But if you if you've realized if your heart is contemplated, if your mind is has come to grips with the reality that the Savior on the cross is is a substitute sacrifice. He is the reason justification is possible. He is redemption. He is propitiation. We must understand, we must realize that that we are the one, you are the one standing in front of the wave of God's wrath. You are the one. And we see the wrath of God unleashed at the cross. The wrath of God comes against your sinful mouth. It comes against your godless heart. It comes against your perversions. All these things Paul has listed out for us, he's explained to us in the lines of this letter so far. And you will admit, I believe, that that we we know our hearts hear some of the worst of those accusations and we we skirt to the side. We we just can't bear to, to see ourselves in the middle of the of the worst of the worst. All of your sins are are placed on Christ at the cross. All of your perversions, all of your godlessnesses, and for you who have trusted in him, he has become the meat in the heart of these theological words. He is the reason salvation is possible. Revelation 6.15 I don't know if we've looked at this passage yet in our study in Romans. Revelation 6 and verse 15 magnifies or puts into the proper sight the next striking of God's wrath in history. We've seen God's wrath at a few times in history, the flood being a notable one, Sodom and Gomorrah being another one. God's wrath against sin and sinners is, is the most devastating of, of terrors to strike the earth. And then when the Lord Jesus was crucified, the wrath of God for sinners who have trusted in Christ is 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 unleashed on the Lord Jesus and another day of wrath comes. Look at this passage here, beginning at verse 15 in Revelation 6. It says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, 
the commanders, the mighty men in each of us are breathing a sigh of relief because none of us are in the list and we're going to escape this great day of wrath. But then it goes on to say, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. This this day that is in the future of this world is, is going to be a day of of anxious, terrifying fear like the world has never known. It'll be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. It'll be worse than Noah's flood. This is a day of God's wrath that will end the age. And God's fury against sin is the same kind of sin that you and I have in our lives. And you are the one who must give an account to mighty God. And when you understand justification, and when you hate sin because of what it costs God, when you understand, let's change the word justification to righteousification. When you understand what had to take place to make you righteous, so that this coming day of wrath and terror doesn't come upon you. When we understand that redemption was not with gold or silver, something we've read and studied already, right? Peter, Peter said it didn't cost something cheap like gold. Redemption was with the blood of the Lamb of God. When, when we realize that redemption costs the blood of our Savior, and when we realize God's judging wrath is satisfied in Christ's offering of his life, the believer has a sense of awe and gratitude and willingly gives their life to the Savior. This next section that we just touched on here is going to magnify how the gospel holds up the justice of God. It holds up the justice of God meaning God is right and he always and must do what's right. He's he's perfectly just. He cannot do wrong. When we read here from verse 23 again, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The next line says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith. If you're looking at your Bible there, you're going to want to mark the word demonstrate. To demonstrate. To demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he had passed over the sins that were previously committed. He's going to demonstrate his righteousness. Why? Because in the past, in the past, he had done something that needed this demonstration. You see that? You're looking at your Bible there. Do you see that? This, this action, this work of propitiation is in some part based on something that took place in the past. And the propitiation that is taking place on the cross, the atonement that is taking place on the cross, is to demonstrate something. To demonstrate his righteousness. 
because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. That he might be just. In other words, God intends to vindicate his just nature. He's going to show his just nature. He's going to put to silence every doubting word and thought that God is actually perfectly just. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, in some ways, salvation presents a bit of a moral dilemma. There is a, there, there is a problem that is put forth in salvation that off and on in time is recognized. Thoughtful critics, atheists, will say that the God we believe, they will attack you, criticize you, and say that the God you believe, the God I believe, is just like any corrupt governor or judge or king. He's corrupt. He's not perfectly just. And here's why they would say something like that. Recall Moses. Moses. Or David, for a moment. Moses murdered the Egyptian, hit him in the sand, and then ran away and hid in the desert for a while before he came back to come and help the Hebrews escape their slavery or lead them through their escape from slavery. David, as we mentioned in our Sunday school hour, David murdered Uriah. Murdered a really, a, from all we can tell, a very noble uh, officer in his army. Murdered him and had an adulterous relationship with with that man's wife. But Moses, the, the Bible says Moses is called a friend of God, and David is a man after God's own heart. And yet Moses and David are set up in the holy scriptures as being really icons of godly men, great men of God, a friend of God, a man after God's own heart. There are other examples like this, and and when cynics and critics of God and the gospel look at these things, they'll say something like, your God is immoral and your God is unjust. How, how can God look at a man like Moses or a man like David and and give them great stature in the kingdom? How, how in the world can they get a pass for their evil Works. It's not right to ignore murder. It's not right to ignore murder and adultery. That's unjust. This is a moral dilemma of God overlooking these things in time past. Isn't it? It presents a moral dilemma. It makes God look un. Just. Even you who have said or will say that you've been forgiven in Christ, you will say God has no wrath for you and he has overlooked your sins. What are your sins that God has overlooked? What is your worst sin? What is your worst ten sins? What is your worst hundred sins? This really presents a a dilemma that is answered here in this passage, this this section of Romans teaches us why God is not immoral. It teaches us why God is not a hypocrite. It actually demonstrates God's perfect justice, God's 
terrifying justice. No, no man should think, well, dig up out off, so I'll get off. That is, that is not how men are to think about what God thinks about sinners and unrighteousness. Indeed, the passage we're looking at vindicates God and his righteousness. And, like I said, some critics, it, it vindicates what some will say he's soft against some of these things. He's just going to give some of these men and women a pass. So notice here in verse 25, when we're thinking about the word propitiation in verse 25, propitiation and and God's justice, we see that God's propitiation is a demonstration. I made a lot of that word a moment ago. Mark that word. Verse 25, whom God set forth, the Christ whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. In other words, he becomes a propitiation for you as you exercise faith in the Christ to demonstrate his righteousness. There's the word demonstrate again. Because of his forbearance, God had passed over sins that were previously committed. Forbearance meaning in his patience, in his waiting. When, when, when you forbear, you're, you're, you're going to let it go for the moment. You yourself are going to endure it when you forbear it. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins previously committed, verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time. Those things at that time he overlooks so something can be demonstrated at the present time. His righteousness. That he might be just in the justifier. He's going to demonstrate now at this time that he is just. He is righteous. Propitiation by his blood has shown his righteousness at the present time. So if you look at the handout, I don't know if you got one, but there is a handout, and it's got these definitions for these words, and you should grab it and uh, fold it up and put it in your Bible. Justification, redemption, and propitiation. And then a little comment at the bottom on the Septuagint. We may or may not mention the Septuagint today. Propitiation is a difficult word because we don't use this word very much in our own language. <clears throat> I was reading commentary on the word uh, propitiation and I decided I wanted to study a little bit more about the, the Septuagint. I don't know a lot about the Septuagint, but in reading this article I found... Um, it said that this king in Egypt needed to propitiate the nation who had slaves there in Egypt. And I thought, oh, that is just like what Herod did. When Herod, in his governorship over Jerusalem, the Jews were mad at him. Do you remember Herod's conflict with the Jews? They wanted, the Jews wanted Herod to kill Jesus. The first thing he did was he said, how about if I let a really, really uh, a worthy criminal go? Let Barabbas go. And what was Herod trying to do? 
He was trying to propitiate the nation. They didn't want that. What did he finally do to propitiate them? He gave them the Christ. He let them kill the Lord Jesus. So there is this sense where in some places in time, you and I can make sense of this word. You and I don't use it. But this is exactly what that word means. We, we find that word in Leviticus 16 if you were reading the Old Testament in Greek. Now, of course, none of you read the Old Testament in Greek. I wish you would read it more in English. Read it more. Keep reading it more. If you read it in Greek, in Leviticus chapter 16, you would find the word which is in your Bible, atonement. In your Bible, in Leviticus 16, it teaches us how the Day of Atonement was practiced. That word, atonement, in Leviticus 16, and this word, propitiation, in Romans 3, if you're reading the Greek Bible, are the exact same word. Atonement and propitiation are very, very, very similar words, and, and we discover their similarity when we read this Greek version of the Old Testament. So on the Day of Atonement, it's the Day of Propitiation. It's the day of satisfying God's wrath. It's the one day on the Jewish calendar when they would do this. Propitiation appeases wrath. It makes the one who is wrathful to be at peace by rendering the offense null. It renders the offense done. When the one who needs to be propitiated is propitiated, it's done. Our passage here specifically says that God himself has set Christ the Son forth as the propitiation. God has set the Son forth to be the propitiation by his blood. The shedding of the blood of the Son of God is the thing that takes place propitiating the wrath of God. The wrath is satisfied by the blood of God's own Lamb. Now here's an interesting part. It says, by faith. And that means the wrath is toward men. Doesn't that mean that the wrath is toward men? Because the people who are propitiated put faith in the Son who shed His blood. See, propitiation is for men who put their faith in the Son. God is wrathful toward men. How is He propitiated? The man who exercises faith on the Son who shed His blood finds that God's wrath has been stayed. This is the teaching of the Gospel. This is how we understand what, what the import is of the blood of the Lamb. The wrath of God is satisfied for the one who has put their faith in the Son and in His propitiating blood. Now, this takes place to demonstrate. This has taken place to demonstrate His righteousness. So, if you 
do not have to face the wrath of God because you have put your faith in the Son. This is a thing, this action, this activity that has taken place, this atonement that has taken place is also a demonstration. In other words, it rescues you from his wrath and it also is a righteous demonstration of something. Keep reading. In his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, again, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. That he might be just. In other words, he can't not be just. God must be just. He is perfectly righteous and just. And so this propitiatory act, this propitiating act is necessary to demonstrate. It's a vindication of his justice. So we need to understand how it is that this propitiation is a demonstration of what exactly it is demonstrating. Propitiation is real for the believer. It accomplishes this this work of propitiation for the one who puts their faith in him. And for the one who does not, the other one who must face his wrath. His wrath toward the one who will not put their hope in him. His wrath is still on fire. His wrath still comes like a train with no brakes. God means to show his righteousness that he's just. So God is just. He has warned that his wrath comes. We read that very early in the book of Romans. We've seen epic demonstrations of his wrath throughout the Old Testament. Sodom and Gomorrah being a terrible one. If there was, what is it, five righteous people there, then God would have spared the, the whole land. And there were none. God's wrath was ripe and it had to come. God's flood in Genesis 6 shows God's wrath toward sin. And remember, all these Old Testament pictures are called types. They're called types, which means the real thing is more intense. The real thing is greater. The shadows give us a a vague idea of what the real thing is. But the Lord Jesus taught us, John taught us, that everything that takes place in the Old Testament is in order to point us to Christ, order to point us to redemption, order to point us to greater understanding of the gospel. The biased trial over the Lord Jesus, the abuse of the Lord Jesus, the torture of the Lord Jesus on the cross shows terrible suffering at the hands of men. And then he bleeds. He bleeds from his head and he bleeds from his body and he's stabbed in his side the sword of a soldier who's watching him. And the cross is where propitiation takes place. The cross is where the blood of the Lamb flows and it placates the wrath of God. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ placates, satisfies the wrath of God. Remember Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The wrath of God must be satisfied or you cannot be saved. God's wrath must be quashed. It must be quenched or you will die eternally. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Verse 21 in chapter 1, Although they knew God, they didn't glorify Him as God, and nor were they thankful. 
but became futile in their thoughts. This is why the wrath of God comes. They're godless and they're thankless. And their foolish hearts were darkened. God is wronged. Do you understand the degree of wrongness toward God that is just very briefly outlined there in the first few lines of uh, Romans chapter 1 there in 18 and on? See, you and I would think this, ignoring God and not being thankful, sure, that's an offense. What kind of offense? What kind of punishment is deserved from this sort of ignoring God, from this sort of sin against God? This is what the wrath of God is coming for. God's justice is his wrath because he's not treated as serious. He's not recognized as glorious. This is why his wrath comes. The prophet said the Messiah would suffer this wrath instead of those who would deserve it. The prophet said the Messiah would suffer this wrath. Justice must be rendered. God's wrath must be satisfied. It is the just end of wrath. God has a strict adherence to truth and law. That's what it means when we say God is just. He is strictly and perfectly a law keeper. He is strictly and perfectly holy. And I think that this is what should cause men to feel dismay about sin. We shouldn't think he's going to give me a pass. We should know he doesn't give anybody a pass. This is why the justice of God is so scary. So at the cross, we see him satisfied. At the cross, we see propitiation taking place and we see the just judgment of God. At the cross, you see God rendering his justice against sin. The cross is where the just work against sin is worked on sinners. God is dead serious about judging sin. What does God really think about your sin? Look at the cross. If we're to rightly understand what God thinks about sin, we have to look at the cross. Don't ever think that sins are little things. They're horrible, terrible sins. And we know that the wage of sin is death because at the cross we see the death of the Son of God. We should see the cross and be dismayed and terrified at God's justice. Think about God being perfectly just and seeing God render his justice at the cross. It should cause men to be terrified of the justice of God. God has shown, he has shown men his justice. He has demonstrated to men what his just work against sin is at the cross. No man in the world can say to a Christian, he gave it a pass. He gives it a pass. He doesn't care. He's immoral. He's unethical in, in calling David a man after his own heart. Why, why can David be looked at as a great man of God? Why can you be looked on as a great woman of God? 
The Son has taken your sins on Him. He hasn't given anybody a pass. He has forgiven your sin because your sin has been placed on the Son. This has been demonstrated for the world to see. Nobody, when this day of wrath comes, nobody will not know that God has shown His justice at the cross. Nobody will not know that. They will all know that God has demonstrated His justice. He's shown what His justice is. And He's shown His justification. He has shown how the one who has faith in Christ has been justified. How have you been made right? How have your sins been dealt with? How have you been given righteousness? The Son died with perfect righteousness. The Son takes the death of the unrighteous one in their place and He gives them righteousness. So the law of justice is satisfied for everyone who believes in the Son. The law of justice is satisfied for everybody whose hope is in the Son. God can offer justification because He can pay for unrighteousness. Christ can pay for unrighteousness because He had none of His own. He can offer His life and it pays for the unrighteousness of men. The blood of the Son is infinitely valuable. Your blood, if you die for your sin, is worth your death. If you die for your sin, it is worth your death. When the Son dies, when the perfect Son dies, He has no sin. That's why the blood of the Son can redeem all of those who would put their hope in Him. He's the sinless Lamb. God is just in forgiving sinners because he paid the price of their sin with the infinite worth of the blood of his son. The suffering son has perfectly satisfied all of God's wrath and all of God's judgment legally. It's a legal transaction. Men saw God's wrath Believers in particular saw God's wrath spent for them. And believers, we know the terrors of the suffering of a sinner's death. We know the awfulness, the suffering of a sinner's death because we we know what it was like in some part for the Savior to die on the cross. We know what this cost. We've seen God demonstrate this to us. And the believer can say, my Lord took it and paid it and granted me righteousness. This is the transaction of the gospel. Propitiation, justification, redemption are hard words to understand. And you need to study the gospel. You need to study the crucifixion. You need to study the righteousness of God. But what... The Spirit wanted to make clear here at this point in Romans is that God, by Christ, is just in overlooking those sins in time past, forbearing those sins in time past. Why? Because at the right time, He would pay for them. Christ 
2,000 years ago paid for them. So he wasn't unjust. He's actually just. He's perfectly just and the justifier. He is just and the justifier for the one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, 4. Just a couple of passages here. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs. carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. His suffering is something that men looked on and said, oh, poor guy. Sort of like bad karma. He did bad, he got bad. And God is paying him back. But that's not what happened at the cross. David's murder was temporarily passed over. But judged on the cross. Right? David's murder didn't get a pass. God judged it on the son. David's adultery was so wicked... David's murder was so wicked, and David will say in tears, probably already said it in tears and humility, he says, my repulsive and gross sin was put on the Christ on the cross. David, David will have that testimony. David has that testimony. God hates sin so much. He hates it. He hates what it does to men and women. He hates it in our lives. He hates it so much that he would take the sins of the world and put them on the sun so that we might live. Isaiah 53.10, one more passage in Isaiah. It pleased the Lord to crush him. The word daka in Hebrew means crush. Some translations say bruise. It pleased the Lord to crush him. How can that please God to crush the sun? How can that please him? His wrath is satisfied. His wrath is satisfied in the bruising, crushing of the sun. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he will see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in the land. I made mention to you a few minutes ago, the Lord will return again. The Lord's return is imminent. The Lord comes again. We know he comes again. This second time, he will complete his just work of judging sin. God will complete and finally judge the sinners of the world. I don't mean to use that word in a derogatory way. It's it's what it's how God has categorized the men of this world. There are those who will live contentedly in their sin, and there are those who will repent of their sin. God comes again to judge sinners, and everyone who has ignored His own gracious and righteous work 
of justification. Think about this for a second. Think about the men and women in the world who have looked at what God the Father has done to God the Son in order to eradicate the penalty of sin. Look at what God has done and think about what men think about that. You say, we don't care, God. We don't care that you put the sins of the world on your son and put him to death. We don't care. We're not going to bow our knee to you. Think of that. Think of that offense to God. The coldness and the callousness, his anger and his wrath is justly exercised against all men who would ignore this amazing, glorious, kind work of justification and of propitiation. Now is the time for men to repent. Now is the time for us to make the gospel clear to our friends and our loved ones. Because when God comes to finish this age, it will be a terrible, terrible day of wrath. And it will be a great day of joy and rejoicing for you who have put your trust in the Son. Because He is just, He will exercise the fiercest wrath the world has ever seen. He is just and he must, but he is the justifier of you who have put your faith in Christ, who believe in the placating work, the blood of the Savior. It is an amazing thing for us to try to put these two concepts together in our minds. We cannot imagine the terrors of God's wrath and the glories and the joy of his offer of life. But these things are true. These are great, wonderful truths of the gospel. Hate your sin, Christian. Hate your sin. And if you're not a Christian, repent of your sin. Put your trust in the one who, who sent the perfect lamb and who paid the price of sin's redemption. Put your trust in him and love the God who rendered death harmless He removes the sting of death. He takes away the worst terrors of death by the Son. And the resurrected Son is your hope. The resurrected Son is our our great token of promise. It's a great, joyous hope you and I have in the Lord. I hope you understand a little bit more deeply the, the work of justification and redemption and propitiation. I hope you understand a little more why it says he is just and the justifier of the one who has put their trust in Christ by his blood. Let's just take a minute and thank the Lord, and then we're going to sing number 338 together, okay? Oh God of heaven, how we marvel, Lord God, we marvel the breadth of the gospel. We're amazed at the work of propitiation. God, we thank you for your word that explains these things, that helps us realize the depth of work you've done to secure our life. Oh God, we thank you and we praise you again in Christ's name. Amen.